This is episode 396 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles, When Staying Awake Really Counts, and Prepper Fiction versus Reality. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by my ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you'd like some more information, click on the link in the show notes or come on over to the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first article. It comes to us from theprepperjournal.com. Hey, have you ever thought about needing to stay awake for long periods of time if you were in a poop pit the fan situation and you needed to make sure that your family was secure? Well, this article is going to talk a little bit about that. It's a little humorous the way that it was written, but it covers this topic. And so definitely one of those interesting ones. So let's go ahead and dive right in. When staying awake really counts. There are some people that we all depend upon to stay awake as others' lives depend on it. And anyone who has served in the military has pulled guard duty. Caution, I may be about to give away some very guarded military secrets here. My first rule of guard duty was during Army basic training at a place that no longer exists, Fort Ord, California. Now, a part of the Monterey Bay seaside communities, it was an interesting place to do basic training. The lovely sand beaches made for a great place to run in combat boots with full packs and the rifle ranges with the small cove on the bay as the backdrop always had recruits looking for seabirds as opposed to the targets. Like a smaller version of Camp Pendleton, as a California native, I always wondered why the government didn't close and sell off these two bases and use the proceeds to pay off the national debt. Prime real estate for sure. I just didn't understand politicians at the time, laboring under the foolishness that our best interests were their best interests. Silly me, I have since learned. So one night I got to quote-unquote guard one of the ammo bunkers while carrying an empty M14 with not even a clip, no radio, and just an occasional drive-by from the unlucky lieutenant who was the quote-unquote officer of the guard that night. It was a four-hour shift, and I was to continue, continue to march around the bunker, so staying awake was not a challenge, as I was to be constantly moving at a reasonable pace. Of course, this was a training exercise. No one expected an enemy SEAL Team 6 to be assaulting the base anytime soon, and the surplus M14s were heavier and more abundant at the time than the M16s, making them a better weapon for basic training use like bayonet training on an asphalt parade field in 95 degree temperatures. I did get to do a similar task a few weeks later in a fire watch tower in the Sierra National Forest. This had two of us trainees in a tower with a radio, canteen full of water and binoculars, looking at trees in every direction for a six hour shift. More training, but I had company and the tower was really spacious. Again, easy to move around and no real threats. The next time, it was too real for all involved, and it was then I got the real mission. Staying awake and alert meant saving lives, my own included. A base just south of the one I was at in Mekong Delta had a sapper drop a charge in what was the command bunker on the base's perimeter. 
manned by a group of four soldiers who were apparently more interested in smoking joints than looking out the openings. Like those at fire support base Marianne, they had become complacent. So uh, it, there is a link here for the sapper drop a charge. And uh, basically the sappers, they're calling them uh, Viet Cong, Vietnamese special forces. That was a very interesting article. It goes to a history website that you might find uh, that you might want to go and, and take a look at that article. So as preppers in an SHTF situation or Tiatwaki, some of us will be called upon to pull guard duty to stay alert and awake and ready to make a life or death call and to be responsible for not only our safety and survival, but that of our family and friends with us. A given to those in the military or police or security people, but a whole different animal to those of us now making our living in other ways, years removed from our military service. Fast forward to life today where a news broadcast can put us to sleep in seconds, where media content has become so rote it is instantly mind-numbing, the remote not working fast enough to switch channels, where daily commutes are more like glacier movements than the Indy 500. What are some things we can do to stay awake when it really counts? The first thing is test yourself. After a normal day, try staying up for just one night while looking out one of your windows. No smartphone, no TV, nothing that makes noise or gives off light and exposes your position. Boredom is the enemy here. Try a two-hour shift first, and if you succeed, try four hours. This will bring home the reality of being on guard duty in as safe an environment as possible. Don't think you have it figured out after 20 minutes. Do the full two hours the first time. It may save lives someday. If you proceed to try a full four hours on another day, you have gotten the message that this could be important. Plus, you have gained some compassion for those that do this and perhaps some sense of judging people who will succeed at this and who will fail. The second thing is prepare ahead of time. Of course, it would be great if you were able to sleep ahead of time. Being tired or sleep deprived when the threats are real is the worst case scenario. There are some steps that can make this somewhat more tolerable depending on your situation. Make the guard shifts as short as possible and if you have the manpower, two per shift to keep each other awake. Stagger their relief time so one will always be fresher. The downside is that every 60 minutes there is movement at your guard position. Consider that in your planning. If you do have to pull longer shifts alone, try liquids, coffee, soda, energy drinks, just water, the colder the better. Sip to make them last and to keep a thirst which will help you stay awake. Remember, mixing coffee with energy drinks will keep you awake, but your body is not going to forgive you later when you do try to get some needed sleep. All right, so I was thinking about a situation here uh, back in the day. So remember Katrina. After Katrina hit, there was a big hurricane that formed in the Gulf or that came into the Gulf, uh, Hurricane Rita at that time. And it was going to be a dead hit to Galveston and come right up 45 and hit Houston and everybody was freaking out because Katrina was fresh on everybody's minds. So, I mean, the, the school districts closed down, everybody kind of closed down. And if you wanted to leave, you could leave and make preparations. And a lot of people did because, of course, we were seeing the scenes of Katrina and all those types of things. Now, we never left, but we know people that did leave. And again, the, the school district closed with plenty of time like uh, two days worth so that people could go ahead and evacuate if they wanted to or make preparations or board up their house or whatever. 
Well, the hurricane at the last minute took a turn and decided to go more towards East Texas than uh, coming straight up to Houston. And so, I mean, that that was a great blessing for us. But in the meantime, uh, one of the things that happened was uh, we had to, you know, we, we were off all these days for school and nothing really happened. We got some rain, we got some wind, but nothing really big happened. So the school district decided to, that we would pay back those days. So one of the days that we had for parent-teacher conference was set aside uh, or was taken as a, to, to be a regular school day. And so we had to have our parent-teacher conferences in the morning and in the afternoon. And so we had to like really, you know, stretch these out. It was going to take forever. It was going to take like a month and a half to get everybody or to fit everybody in. So uh, I was you know, fairly new to teaching. I asked my partner, I said, this is kind of dumb. What if we set up a time where we could go to like Starbucks and parents could come and we would just we would meet them there and you know we would have our parent conferences there and so I had all my parents on an email list so what we actually had parents canceling during the week to meet us on a Saturday because uh, we did all day Saturday at a Starbucks and so uh, back then I was really stupid. I was drinking uh, a regular Starbucks coffee and two shots of espresso. So I think it's it's called a black eye, right? See, a red eye or a black eye? I don't know. Two shots of espresso. So here we are. We're going. Uh, yeah, I'm just you know we're jamming right along, having all these parent conferences. And then uh, about midway through, I decide to have another one. And of course, like an idiot, I go and have the coffee with two shots of espresso. So by the time we're getting towards the end, I am revved up. I am so, I've got so much caffeine in me. I could feel myself shaking. I could feel my hands shaking. I was talking really fast, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that happened was when I got home, I was so worn out that I slept for hours. And so that was coming off of that, you know, that caffeine high. Uh, that's something that can happen. One of the things that wasn't mentioned here, but uh, I've seen it before, is caffeine gum. So it's gum that has caffeine in it. So you can chew that, and that would, you know, give you, uh, you know, keep you up at night and stuff like that. So you know, one of those things to uh, to consider there. All right. So I just wanted to tell that story because I was remembering it, thinking about all these, all this coffee and and stimulants and stuff. All right. So the next thing is a snack on some stimulants. Anything with a high caffeine or sugar content which, as bad as it sounds, could be instant coffee granules, sugar cubes, small pieces of candy not chewed but allowed to dissolve in your mouth. Your dentist will either love you or hate you, depending on the barter he agreed to, but they work. A lot of long-haul trucker drivers use this method. Some will recommend dried fruits or nuts. They don't dissolve and don't provide the stimulant, and if you chew like a cow, that produces noise. So play some mind games. Do math in your head. Multiply a three-digit number by two-digit number in your head. This is how actors are taught to look like they are thinking, and it works because your mind is engaged. Force yourself to complete the problems. This mental exercise is very useful. Count from 1,000 backwards. It makes time pass, and it is a method professional speakers or debaters use to keep from overreacting to a dissenting reply immediately as opposed to processing the information first. I am talking about real debate as opposed to the mock stupidity that the media passes off as debate. Sing in your head a favorite song and do your best to get the lyrics right. If you get one stuck in your head, think of another to replace it. Anyone who has ever ridden on the small world attraction at a Disney theme park gets this one. 
Make yourself less than comfortable. Too warm or too cold are good, while too relaxed is bad. Avoid the things we seek when we are trying to get to sleep. If you can move, then do move. Do a few calisthenics in place, but only if your position will not be compromised. Closed kinesthetic exercises can be done quietly and are beneficial to boot. Create a routine, one that you can work through night after night, one that challenges your mind. Pick a song to sing where you don't know all of the lyrics and then fill in the missing parts with things you create. Set aside a period of time to do the mind math, mental exercise, and stay on the schedule. Do a complete scan of the area you are responsible for covering and then pick some landmarks, places where people approaching might gather and hide. A large tree, a gully, a small hedge roll, and do a scan periodically of just those, concentrating on their shapes and contours and looking for any changes. Complacency is the enemy and it gets people killed. Of course, when not on guard duty, catch as much sleep as you can. I have read that rubbing a small bit of hot sauce in your eyes will help. It was, after all, on the internet. I am mystified that this would even be attempted. After all, being there wide awake with your eyes blinded makes you, well, useless. People also suggest kneeling on small rocks or pebbles or placing some in your shoes to keep you uncomfortable. I am against anything that produces pain and possible injury. You may instantly need to run from your location on sore knees with sore feet. Long-haul drivers have some tricks they use, but most involve sounds and motions, enemies to concealment. One other thing to consider is how to not give away your position. Smoke from a cigarette can be seen at night from a distance of 250 to 500 yards. Smoke from a campfire for miles. A flashlight or light from a smartphone flashlight app can be seen up to 500 yards. Even the glow of its screen all well within sniper range. Any illumination of your position and you are compromised, and this includes sound. Noise is a sure giveaway. We all have that friend who taps his or her foot constantly, or the people who like to crack their knuckles. Laser sights work both ways, as do tracer rounds. As to muzzle flashes, once you produce that, you already know your position is compromised. Plan on having alternate locations after you fire at a threat because you have exposed your position by firing. Other things that give away your position even at night, light reflected off things like binoculars, weapons, and personal items such as those drink cans. The reality is that if you sit perfectly still, make no noise, and stay wide awake, you may still be exposed with the layers upon layers of technology that have been fielded to search for, acquire, and destroy targets. In an SHTF world, these should be limited, hopefully still in the hands of law enforcement and the military, and depending on the condition, they may or may not be the people you want to avoid. Now, as to that buzzing sound, and so there was a picture of a drone there at the very, very end. All right, guys, so that's one of these things to uh, to consider. Again, always, there may be things that you don't think about on a regular basis, but one of those things that, like, hey, if I had to do this, what would I do? I know that as I get older and older, man, staying up later and later is one of those things that it's very, very hard to do. Unless you are, like he was mentioning here in this article, you're having fun, there's some kind of distraction, you know, of course, that's easy to do at that point. So uh, anyway, one of those things to, uh, to consider if you ever find yourself in this predicament. Again, guys, that's over at theprepperjournal.com. Like always, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And if you get a chance, go check out that Sapper Drop a Charge link because uh, that, that article was very interesting. 
All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our next article. It comes to us from Beans, Bullets, Bandages, and You. And the article is entitled Prepper Fiction versus Reality. If you've never looked at any of the prepper fiction, if you've never read a prepper fiction novel, I mean, there's some good stuff out there, um, great entertainment, and some of it, uh, a lot of it, has good information as far as to get you thinking about preparedness, right? So you really got to choose and you really got to know, you know, which which authors to read, though. He's going to mention One Second After here, which is a really great book. And if you haven't read that one, that is definitely one that's recommended. I always like my good friend Mark Goodwin's books. Um, he writes from a Christian perspective and also uh, from that preparedness perspective as well. So uh, I really like his books. I re- actually listen to his books on audio because I just don't have time to read anymore. But, uh, you know, definitely worth it and a lot of great entertainment. But, uh, you know, here Paranoid Prepper is going to be talking about some of the differences between fiction, the things that we read in prepper fiction, and then what really what, what we really experience in reality. And so uh, I think this would be a good one as well. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. Many of us have read a substantial amount of apocalyptic fiction, and in many cases, the stories have motivated us to become preppers or to step up our prepping plans because the stories seem so credible. Apocalyptic fiction often provides a fun read and, in some cases, very good ideas about how to prep. There are key books of fiction that every prepper ought to have read simply to be culturally literate in prepper circles. For instance, can you imagine having a conversation about EMPs without having read One Second After? By the way, if you haven't read One Second After, please read it so this post makes sense to you. Right here on 3BY, we have one of the most prolific writers of post-apocalyptic fiction, Jerry D. Young. I've lost count of the books and short stories of Jerry's that I have read, but I have gotten many good ideas from Jerry's stories, and they are fun reads as well. A good story can provide a lesson in a much more enjoyable fashion than nonfiction. I'd prefer a good story to a book on what to put in an Altoids tin any day. However, I find that many preppers read the available fiction and wind up with distorted ideas about future possibilities and how to prepare for disasters because they fail to sort lessons from the stories from the plot lines that make an entertaining story. I would like to clear some of that up so you can enjoy the rich body of fiction that is available without turning into a doomsday prepper, whack job, without the television show. So how long until normalcy returns? Many prepper fiction involves widespread long-term events up to the end of the world as we know it. This makes sense because short-term events don't make interesting settings for good stories. For instance, EMPs and other grid-down situations are used for prepper fiction all the time. Many of these are excellent reads, and I highly recommend reading EMP stories from a variety of authors. However, what is the reality around grid-down situations? We've actually had some interesting grid-down scenarios play out. In 2003, we had a blackout in the northeastern U.S. where about a quarter of the country lost power. Don't remember it? That's because power was restored in less than 24 hours. The most extreme real grid-down experience we have had is Puerto Rico, post-Hurricane Maria. Puerto Rico has had varying levels of electrical service for months, but the cause was a hurricane, not an EMP. I have yet to hear Puerto Ricans resorting to cannibalism. If you don't understand the last sentence, you haven't read one second after. All right, so to be fair, I don't, you know, the media wasn't, we weren't really getting the full picture on Puerto Rico. I think uh, now we have heard that there was people that died in the thousands as opposed to the the, the small number that they had uh, given. And then not only that, there are 
you know, Puerto Rico, when you think of Puerto Rico, you're thinking about, you know, the big cities, but there are people out in the countryside who do not have power and they are, you know, they're, they're without power and they're not able to run the lines out there. There's just so much damage out there. So uh, we don't really know what things are like over there. And, you know, there's another thing here. I'm just trying to give another perspective here. When you have the idea that hope is there where you have, um, you know, electricity can be restored, right? And people are coming around. We're getting to it. We're working on it, right? Um, the 24 hours, you know, that uh, that the, the country was without grid, right? Um, you know, like, hey, we are working on it. People still had their cell phones. I'm sure people were still getting information, you know, out there. There were still pockets and things like that. You know, when there's hope, it, that makes a big, big difference. When people start, when reality sits in, that, hey, you know what, things aren't going back to normal anytime soon, things aren't going back to the way they were, that that brings a whole different reality to it, right, as we're talking about that. So uh, just I'm just trying to give a different perspective of this article. All right, so let's go ahead and continue on. So reality is that the disasters you are likely to experience are shorter term and less severe than what you find in Prepper Fiction. Many of us have experienced events like hurricanes, but none of, none of them have resulted in Tiatwaki yet. As a result, some preppers are overwhelmed by fictional disasters and decide that prepping is beyond them. Reality is that by prepping for short-term disasters, you can make a huge difference in your level of preparedness. I think you should prep for the longest period you can, but there is no need to give up just because you can't afford a bunker. If you have a month-long disaster event in your area, would you rather have two weeks of supplies or no supplies? You are better off preparing for short-term disasters than not preparing even in a long-term scenario. So good points there. All right, the level of violence. Most prepper fictions involve some violence. That is, the protagonist winds up in a gun battle between his group and a criminal gang or some other group that wants to take their supplies. It is hard to find a work of prepper fiction that doesn't include some action to turn it into an exciting story. It makes sense that with a breakdown of communication systems, the level of crime will increase, so the first issue in determining the likelihood of crime or violence post-disaster is what is the level before the disaster. If you live in Chicago, murder capital of the U.S., that may be a concern. However, if you live in Wyoming, not so much. Crime in the U.S. is centered in a few larger or large urban centers. Avoid those locations. In recent years, the worst violence connected to a disaster was during Katrina, though most deaths were the result of the botched evacuation. The problems in New Orleans were well publicized and were probably exacerbated by the city's attempt to confiscate firearms in advance of the hurricane. That action was subsequently ruled unconstitutional by the federal courts. A new federal law was also passed specifically banning firearm seizures during a disaster. While prepper fiction tends to promote the Oath Keepers in such contexts, they were nowhere to be found during Katrina. However, since gun owners are now hyper-aware of attempts to use disaster as an excuse for gun confiscation, I would expect that gun owners themselves would resist such efforts during future disasters, mostly by hiding their firearms. A few might actively resist the authorities. Criminals would then find that the population was pretty much armed as they are now, pre-disaster, that is, 400 million firearms in circulation with a clear understanding that the population needs to defend themselves in the absence of a 911 system. In short, while crime would go up, so would the level of self-defense as people became aware of the rising crime. 
criminal gangs would not expand unchecked as they do in many novels, but would be thinned out by people defending themselves. Crime has never been a career choice with good life expectancy. The net result would be slight increase in crime and violence. Families will still need to defend themselves, but the level of violence is more likely to look like Katrina than One Second After or any other novel. Then what about bug outs? Every prepper novel seems to involve at least one bug out, sometimes several. Over the course of the story, back here in reality, disasters make travel difficult. Covering any distance without a working vehicle becomes extremely difficult and working vehicles may suffer from other impediments. For instance, during Hurricane Sandy, my local electric utility had to deal with 45,000 downed trees that took out power lines. Most of those trees landed in the middle of the road, often with a mixed bag of power lines and poles. After the hurricane came through, I was not able to drive more than a couple of hundred yards for the first four days. Other areas were affected longer. Simply losing power will take out traffic lights and screw up traffic. As a particular matter, a bug out either has to happen in advance or it may be a long time before you are actually able to go to your bug out location. Bug outs are very much a last resort and may be difficult to do. The idea of loading up the family SUV and heading for the cabin won't work too well if there are trees down all over the place. And down trees don't sound like an exciting item to work into someone's next novel. Picture a disaster novel where the cars all work but the traffic lights are all out. The world descends into a massive traffic jam. While that may sound very realistic, it doesn't have much of a storyline. So I recommend that you read Prepper Fiction, but keep a clear head about what you are prepping for versus what makes a good plot and an entertaining read. If you aren't prepared for short-term disasters, then start there. You are more likely to experience a short-term disaster than Tiawaki. And if we do experience the apocalypse, your preps will at least give you some slack that will greatly improve your odds of survival. Expect an increase in crime, but not to the level that Prepper Fiction would cause you to believe. These are stories and they need some action to be enjoyable reading. You will need to up your preparedness for simple crimes up to the home invasion level. Don't expect to easily bug out because movements will be hampered by road conditions, stalled cars, disabled traffic lights, etc. And most importantly, read prepper fiction with the idea of learning some prepper tips. But don't confuse a good piece of fiction with what is likely to happen. Alright guys, so there you go. Um, there are 17 comments here, and uh, you can come over to Beans, Bullets, Bandages, and You, and this article to check out those comments. You know, um, it's definitely one of those things, and I will admit, after you read Prepper Fiction, it is one of those things that you can, if you're not really focused in, you know, uh, for instance, I'll go back to one second after. And so uh, I read, when I was first getting into preparedness, I read one second uh, after and there was a, there's another book called Lights Out and at one point Lights Out was a free download uh, and you might be able to find it still on the internet somewhere but uh, it was a, it was a free download whatever but you can still buy it it's still a good story and uh, so I read these, both of these back to back and uh, you know I I was like wow realizing that an EMP would do so much damage and so you you walk around in a little fog. And it, you know, it just takes a little while to get back into society and realize that, you know what, your car is going to start when you turn it on and you go to work in the morning and all that kind of stuff. So you do have to be careful. If you're one of those people that, that can't, 
get you can't divorce yourself from the story and it just you know gets your mind going so so much then maybe you know prepper fiction isn't for you but there are some great you know great entertainment would i rather listen to a great prepper fiction audiobook than see some of the junk that i uh, see on television, you know, that, that's on television. And I pretty much have gotten to the point where I don't watch TV at all anymore. Would I rather, would I rather do that? Yes, of course. Would I rather read a good, if I had the time to sit down and read, would I rather read a good prepper fiction novel than to go in to, you know, watch television or do something that's just, you know, just dumb like that? Yes, of course, you know, and, uh, you know, being entertained is always good. I do like series. That's one reason why I like Mark Goodwin's books because it's a you know it's characters that carry over, and then in some of the cases, um, there's been uh, one series carries over to another series, or the characters carry over, and uh, you know stuff like that. So there is a lot of benefit to it, just as long as you can keep your mind real, you know, to to the point that hey, you know what, this is prepper fiction. Let me learn from it. Let me take from what I, from it from what I can and have entertainment purposes. And, and go from there, right? So that's just good advice for anyone to really take in, even myself, I'm talking to myself, as well as uh, you, those of you that are new to preparedness, because I know that there's always new people coming because of the podcast. And so those of you that are new, if you wind up reading a book like One Second After or some kind of prepper fiction, or even the experienced uh, preppers out there, is just good advice to, uh, to heed as you read those uh, prepper fiction novels out there. But definitely do support do support uh, you know th- those that are out there writing for the preparedness community. Hey, before I close, I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to Brian. He left a comment in uh, episode three hundred and ninety four. In that episode, we read an article about using alcohol. You know, different ways to use alcohol or preppers would use alcohol and, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that he mentioned that wasn't mentioned in the article was. You, you know, using it for Molotov cocktails, right? So you could do, use it that way since alcohol, since the higher proof uh, alcohol does have that, uh, you know, that re- very flammable uh, ability, you could use it in that way. Now, would you want to use it in that way? Uh, probably not because in that case, you know, that high proof alcohol would probably be very valuable. But if you were in a last ditch effort, you know, you needed it, you know, that, that's possible. And then later on in the Facebook group, I believe he brought up, you know, sometimes there's gasoline that kind of goes bad. Uh, and so you, you might not put it in an engine, but you could use it for, for that purpose if you needed to use that purpose. I know Molotov cocktails are are, uh, are very capable of doing a lot of damage. I know that that's what's happening over in Israel. They are uh, using balloons to light Molotov cocktails and send them over and they have burned thousands and thousands and thousands of acres over there and done a lot of damage to uh to you know to the israeli forest and and crops and things like that because of uh the way you know these molotov cocktails that are being sent over with balloons and then you really can't you can't really uh guide them or anything it's kind of like wherever they go and they could land in a school and and so you know it's pretty dangerous so it's uh, definitely something that they're always keeping in mind over there. But just wanted to uh, thank Brian for leaving that comment and wanted to throw that out there to those of you that are listening, um, that that's uh, another option there, I guess, if you want to store alcohol. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 396. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Head on over to the Prepper Website Podcast. That way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. 
hey, and if you are finding value in the podcast, you know, if you're listening on a regular basis and you find value, or even it might be your first time listening, I would greatly appreciate a review over at iTunes or, you know, a five-star review. That would be great. It really helps to get the algorithms. It helps people to find the podcast. And then you might be, you might not use iTunes. You might be using Stitcher. You might be using, you know, another program. If you can rate and review the podcast, that would be great. I really would appreciate that because I feel the more people that can hear the podcast and that can be helped in preparedness, the better everyone will be. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.